This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, guest host Dr. Anthony Eames, director of scholarly initiatives at the Reagan Institute, speaks with Dr. Susan Colburn, author of Euro Missiles, the nuclear weapons that nearly destroyed NATO. Anthony and Susan discuss the book, The History of NATO, and American Foreign Policy and Defense. Hello, Reaganism listeners. My name is Anthony Eames. I am your guest host for today's podcast and the Director of Scholarly Initiatives at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. I'm pleased to be joined here today by Dr. Susan Colburn, the Associate Director of the Grand Strategy Program at Duke University and one of our friends in the American Memorial Consortium. And today she is here to talk about her wonderful book, Euro Missiles, uh, The Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroyed NATO. You can buy this, and I very much recommend that you buy it on Amazon or wherever else you may order your books nowadays. Uh, Susie, great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, You really hit on a a timely topic here. Euro missiles seem to be uh, well. First, before we get into why it's timely, what are what are the Euro missiles? Yeah. So the whole premise of the book is to talk about a class of nuclear weapons that loomed large in the end of the Cold War. Uh, a group of U.S. and Soviet missiles stationed in Europe that could target other parts of Europe. Hence the incredibly creative name, Euro missiles. But they were often known as theater nuclear forces or TNF or intermediate range nuclear forces, INF. There's a lot of jargon in this space and a lot of acronyms, but we'll try to keep them to a minimum. But those missiles uh, really highlighted the degree to which the Cold War competition uh, shaped the politics of Europe. And, and so... The Euro missiles are are a central cast of characters in that story, an unusual cast of characters uh, to have them be inanimate objects, uh, but but the, the central cast of, of the book. Well, judging by some of the cartoons you have in the book, um, they don't seem too inanimate uh, based on some of that uh, political commentary, uh, but they also seem to be increasingly relevant today. Uh, any number of uh, observers of the East-West security um, relationship seem to frequently point to kind of the resolution of the Euro missile crisis as a case study. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about um, why that is? Why do do people who think about these things day in and day out continue to turn back to this crisis um, as something that can be informative? Yeah, I, I think it's in part uh, a natural human inclination. We often, whether we intend to or not, we all practice and dabble in a little bit of history because the past has a, a sense of certainty that the future doesn't or that even the present doesn't. And so to make sense of an uncertain present and future, we look to past precedent or past examples to give us uh, ideas, comfort, uh, whatever. And I think the Euro missile story is can be a very tempting analogy that, depending on the way you read it, could be a quite comforting analogy. Uh, there's a very common and quite neat narrative arc that you could tell this story as one where the Soviet Union deployed new upgraded missiles in the mid-1970s, the Western allies in NATO come together uh, in a robust response to field new missiles of their own in response. They weather huge public opposition in the early 1980s, something I'm sure we'll talk more about. And and despite that public opposition, managed to see the deployments through. And then within just a few short years, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev are able to reach an agreement that gets rid of this whole class of weapons, a historic landmark arms control agreement, the first between the, the two superpowers of the Cold War to get rid of an entire class of nuclear weapons. And so... With that narrative, anybody who is familiar with rhetorical devices, I think, can see that neat rise and fall arc. And so it seems like such a perfect story, that it worked out at every step of the way. Um, 
And, and so I think that analogy can be quite tempting because people look to that narrative uh, and see it as a possible recipe or a playbook that we might rerun in the present or the future. I am not so sold on that narrative, uh, which we can talk more about, but I think that's why it's so tempting today. And, and, and you actually say that narrative begins a little earlier than, than what we, we generally believe it does. So let, let's go all the way back to when you start this book. And, and I have to agree with you that you started at exactly the right time. Um, something that I'm sure a number of our friends and other scholars would, would say the same. You begin with um, what you might kind of term as an inflection point. Uh, in NATO's um, lifespan. Maybe it's kind of at the adolescence for NATO. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that inflection point is? What's what what's the cause of that kind of um, need for growth? Yeah, so I would say there's, there's two pieces of NATO's long history that really informed the way I talk about the origins of the Euro missiles as an issue in the book. And so the first actually dates back even to the founding of the alliance in the late 1940s. And that's just some fundamental structural things about how NATO as a military and political alliance operates. And I often tell my students when I talk about the origins of NATO that if you were uh, a Martian and you landed on Earth in the late 1940s and you were going to design your own alliance, the geography of NATO is not what you would ever pick if you had your choice. You would never want an alliance where your most powerful actor is the furthest from the front line you want to defend and where an ocean separates the United States from all of its allies except for Canada. And so the United States is constantly struggling about how they are going to project power all the way to that central dividing line of Europe, right? Cutting the two Germanys in half uh, along the Fulda Gap and other sort of high, high risk tension points of the Cold War. And so some of the problems that I talk about in the book really are rooted in that basic structural problem of how does the United States protect its allies and provide all of those European powers and the Canadians, big and small, with enough reassurance that that protection is real, is going to save them from the threats of the Cold War. The second specific set of problems uh, that, that give rise to the Euro missiles as an issue are these more fuzzy problems of the 1960s, what you just referred to as the adolescence of NATO, which is that after moments of immense tension, the Berlin crisis in the late 1950s and early 1960s, the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s, the Cold War, at least in Europe, begins to stabilize in the 1960s. And as that system becomes more stable, the threat, the immediate dangers of the Cold War seem to recede. And so NATO faces a, a very difficult situation in which they are uncertain whether their publics, whether their voters, whether their parliaments will continue to support the kind of spending, the kinds of defense investments, the, the structures of the alliance that they still deem necessary. And so I'm far from the only scholar to have written about this. Michael Morgan writes about this beautifully in his book on the Helsinki Accords. Uh, Tim Sale, a great historian of NATO, has also written very, very eloquently about this. But so there is this difficult period, these growing pains in the 1960s, where NATO is trying to figure out how to stay in business. And that issue really comes to a head in 1966, 1967, when uh, Charles de Gaulle, the French president of the day, withdraws France from the Integrated Military Command, right? Not from NATO itself, but from right. the Integrated Military Command. And the alliance goes through a whole exercise after that designed to sort of rebrand. And they settle on this two-pronged approach. They're going to do the old stuff that they had done before. So ensuring sufficient deterrence of the Soviet Union and defense of Western territory. But to that, they carve out a role in the pursuit of detente, right? The idea that NATO can somehow be an engine in improving relations with the Soviet Union and the rest of the Warsaw Pact, right? Improving what in the Cold War jargon would have been called just East-West relations as a shorthand. And so 
that sets the stage in many respects for all of these struggles that come afterwards, because it is that that lays the groundwork for arms control as a political project, shapes the way publics think about arms control. Uh, but also colors the way policymakers across NATO are thinking about NATO's role in the international system. So the pursuit of detente becomes one of these core aims. And, and normally we associate detente with the, the 1970s um, as the kind of prime decade, though, as you point out, it, that pursuit begins a little earlier. Um one of the things you really lay out here is the top means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and a lot of different stakeholders. And this seems to kind of be uh, fertile ground for some political discord later, later on. So, so what does detente mean um, to who uh, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, how should it be realized? Detente is at its most basic, uh, a call to relax tensions. Uh, the idea of political rapprochement, an improvement in relations in the Cold War context between East and West. And that's the basic level, but it, it has a lot of different meanings to different players in this in this game of East-West politics, right? So, so, so how does that meaning kind of come into conflict um, between the different stakeholders? Yeah, it it is constantly being defined and redefined based on a whole host of different inputs, domestic politics, foreign policy preferences, strategic culture. And there is a fundamental kernel of debate within NATO, which is why would you pursue improved relations with the Soviet Union or with the states of Eastern Europe in the Warsaw Pact? Is it to transcend the Cold War and end it? Is it to make competition more manageable? Is it to compete more effectively? Uh, and there were, at various times, always policymakers who believed in every one of those schools. Some relied heavily on economics uh, with early ideas of interdependence that uh, greater East-West economic ties would help start to break down socialism, communism as a system. Other who are the champions of that? that that belief yeah so you I, I would say we most often associate that with the west germans uh and the sort of trade through rapprochement uh model as something that maybe contemporary observers might still see discussed a lot when we think about uh energy relations between germany and russia uh and and on the other side of the ledger more typically associated with American policymakers, I think you have a much more competitive strain of detente, seeing uh, seeing detente as a way to put guardrails on the existing competition, but in a way that would change the playing field to make it so that the United States and its allies in NATO could compete more effectively over the long run. So if we think about, to give just one example that I talk about in the book, the Nixon administration's approach to arms control is very much guided by those principles. They are worried about the rapid growth of the Soviet strategic nuclear arsenal in particular. And arms control is not necessarily a way to fundamentally stop the Cold War from occurring or, or stop it from being competitive. It's just about changing the terms on which they're competing so that they are more advantageous to the United States. Mm. And, and, and you alluded to domestic inputs. Uh, at this time, the, the Nixon administration is dealing with their own kind of um, pushback, right, from the American public and from Congress as to how much United States should invest in the Cold War. Can you can you point out a few of those kind of um, key forces pushing back on investment in the Cold War? Yeah. You, so you have uh, a whole constellation of problems that are facing the Nixon administration. So you, of course, have domestic backlash against the war in Vietnam and the economic costs of engaging in that war, uh, not to mention moral and other uh, political objections to the war. But even in the space of arms control, you have uh, you have prominent critics of the Nixon administration's approach. The Nixon approach is is fascinating as a brief aside because in public it was almost always described as cooperative, right? That arms control was about cooperating with the Soviet Union, about remaking the relationship, the political relationship with the Soviet Union. But behind the scenes, 
uh, the administration was in a sort of internecine fight about whether that really was the purpose of arms control or whether arms control was about a competitive strategy. And you have different pieces of the administration fighting and backstabbing one another and, and lying to one another about what their general aims are. And, and all of that is before you have other political opposition. So someone like uh, Scoop Jackson, right, a senator from Washington State, who was a hawkish Democrat, a vocal critic of the Nixon administration's policy on strategic arms control, uh, because Jackson objected to the principle of equality, right, that, that giving a degree of strategic parity um, uh, a like for like with the Soviet arsenal was fundamentally, in Jackson's view, detrimental to U.S. security. So there's a ton of different pressures, and the Nixon administration is not alone in this, but it is a good uh, indicator of just how many inputs are shaping uh, detente policy. Right. And so so arms control seems to be at the center of, of detente, and whether or not that's Cold War by other means or the resolution of Cold War through an enhanced cooperation detente uh, seems to be the kind of focal point of international politics. One of those critics of arms control and detente uh, is Ronald Reagan. And I'd like if you could zero in a little bit on the different approaches that presidents took and specifically Ronald Reagan took to dealing with this incredibly complex issue of Euro missiles and how to get Europeans on board, how to bring the Soviets to the table and how to manage domestic publics and all these different things. Can you walk us through those kind of different approaches, um, beginning with Nixon and, and concluding with, with President Reagan? Yeah, so following the presidential engagement with this issue is really a good reminder of some of the structural elements that shape the way the United States participates in NATO as an alliance. Arms control is a prime illustration of a sort of unescapable or inescapable fact in, in NATO's politics, which is that it is both an alliance of equals and an alliance where one country is obviously first among equals, that being the United States. And so the realities of arms control negotiations meant that it was not all of the NATO allies who went to the negotiating table with the Soviet Union. It was the United States. And so from whether it was the Nixon administration, the Ford administration, the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, there is a whole complex of, of consultations between the United States, its arms control negotiators, and the allies to make sure that everybody is, if they're not happy, at least they're informed and not complaining publicly in the press, and that their interests are to some degree being represented. But of course, not all of the allies have the same interests, and not everybody's interests can win when you don't share the same interests. And so there's a whole range of options about how alliance management works, but it's also an evolving problem because the issue itself is evolving. So maybe as a, a way to give a contrast is to compare the Carter administration to the Reagan administration. Yeah, that's a good idea. So in the late 1970s, much of the issue, right, the, the NATO allies are debating whether or not these new Soviet missiles, the SS-20s, actually pose a threat, a new, fundamentally new threat to the security of Western Europe. And what did those missiles look like? I mean, give us a little readout on their specs, if you will. Why are they so threatening? They, or maybe not threatening. Well, so they are a significant upgrade from the previous so Soviet capabilities. The Soviet Union had deployed medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but the SS-4s and SS-5s mostly blew up on the launch pad and were very reliable. They relied on liquid fuel. And the SS-20s, by comparison, were, you know, multi-warhead, uh, mobile, and, and so just in sheer technological advances and upgrade. Uh, there's also considerable debate about whether they could be converted into a strategic weapon because they had been based on an earlier Soviet system that was designed to be an an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. So this is what the Carter administration is now facing in 1976. Yeah. So when the when when the Carter administration comes into office in January 1977, there's this 
big debate already taking place about whether or not these new SS-20s matter or a fundamental change in Western Europe's security. The Ford administration had insisted that they weren't, but they weren't really doing a good job convincing the West Germans uh, in particular that that, that was not the case. <laughs> And so much of the Carter Carter's term in office is defined by this debate. Uh, Carter is primarily focused on strategic arms control, trying to get a second assault agreement, and wants to trade away some of these theater weapons in the hopes of uh, helping to secure an agreement. But the European allies, many of them want to keep these same systems because they see them as a potential counter to the new Soviet systems. And so Carter's style is defined uh, in many respects by one of response, really uh, acknowledging Western European concerns, particularly West German concerns, and recalibrating policy uh, accordingly. Uh, and, and so... I think that's a function in part of Carter's own leadership style, uh, a willingness to change course, but also a function of the way the issue is working in the in the late 1970s. That uh, that basic trend in which the United States is responding to Western European concerns uh, changes fundamentally in in the early 1980s because the nature of Western European concerns changes dramatically. In 1979, December 1979, NATO finally decides that they are going to deploy new missiles to Western Europe. These are the Griffins, the Grand Lodge cruise missiles or Glickums, and the Pershing Twos. And they have this crazy time lag in their plan to deploy. The deployments won't take place until 1983. Uh, if you dwell on- Why is it? Why is it going to be four years until these we these weapons actually meet the Soviet- Threat. I mean, what, what's the what's the delay? What's the holdup? In retrospect, I think this is one of the most difficult things, both simple and difficult to explain, because with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how easily exploited that four year period would right. be. But it is a function of research and development. It takes mm -hmm. time to produce nuclear weapons. And so the systems that they are planning to deploy, 1983 is the first period when they're really confident that they can, in fact, be deployed. And so even through the period where they are, uh, the NATO allies are out making publicly the case for these new weapons, they're also testing these weapons and on a few occasions have some, some high profile misses in the tests where they, they don't perform quite as well as uh, certainly allied policymakers would like. So, but the, that decision to de deploy in 1979 becomes a lightning rod for public criticism. And you see just a huge swell of public opposition to nuclear weapons, record-breaking demonstrations, some of the largest in post-1945 Europe and in North America. And in the face of that, the whole political challenge changes in the early 1980s. And, and so there, some of the old tools in the toolkit remain the same, extensive consultation uh, in allied circles, but presidential leadership matters in a new way, and Reagan himself becomes so central to the conversation. Critics of the dual-track decision, the NATO decision to deploy these new weapons, uh, often use Reagan. Reagan is sort of the cultural touchstone. He becomes uh, easily mocked. Uh, if you look at protest photos and placards uh, from the day, they are often appeals rooted in Reagan, right? They're images of the president riding a missile like a nuclear cowboy. They are calls for Reagan to leave Europe. They are calls for Reagan personally to avoid nuclear war. And, and there is a place where presidential style also shaped uh, the conversation because Reagan was, as we know, very willing to tell it as he saw it. Uh, happy to go out on the campaign trail in 1980 and then as president in 1981 to be critical of the Soviet Union, to call it an evil empire, to publicly uh, before the British Parliament say that communism should be left on the ash heap of history, right? All the sort of quotable buzzwords of Reagan. And for those who were critical of the president or worried about what the United States might do with these nuclear weapons, it became a very easy um an easy symbol to leverage. So 
if we could walk back and connect to this to detente, uh, Reagan calling it as he sees it. He sees detente as a basically a pause in hostilities that allows the Soviets to regain their strength and you know steal a march on, on the United States around the world and and, and in Europe. Um, those forces that are contending with Reagan on the on the question of the Euro missiles. Are they advocating for a return to detente? Are they advocating for um, total disarmament? I mean, we know where Reagan stood, or at least we think we know where Reagan stood. And maybe that's something you can, you know, uh, kind of go into for us. Where does Reagan stand and where do these protest forces stand um, with regards to detente and with regards to the future of the U.S.-Soviet competition? Yeah, Reagan, Reagan's view on the Soviet Union, I think, is uh, one of the great mysteries that everybody is confident they can answer and historians will argue about for the indefinite future. Uh, Reagan, as we know from his two his two terms in office, was at once someone who was content to call the Soviet Union an evil empire and also someone who was willing to sit down with Gorbachev and sign a sweeping uh, agreement to dismantle huge swaths of both nuclear arsenals. And so Reagan, I would I would describe, as many do, Reagan as a critic of detente, but I would describe Reagan as a critic of one particular brand of detente, which is the detente of the 1970s. Reagan was uh, very bothered by the degree to which the 1970s had been marked by a sense of doom and gloom of a lack of pride in the United States and what it could do in the world. Uh, and, and Reagan comes to office in 1981 incredibly pessimistic about the state of the world around them, including how the United States is performing vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. Uh, but I think that doesn't necessarily mean that Reagan was a critic of detente full stop. He was open to engagement with the Soviet Union, willing to participate in arms control negotiations and other conversations, even when members of his administration were not so open to, to the United States staying at the negotiating table and saw, uh, saw that kind of engagement as uh, critical to managing the Cold War and ultimately to the United States securing the kinds of outcomes in the Cold War that he uh, he hoped to see the United States achieve. In terms of what comes on the other side of the ledger, so to speak, detente was so amorphous and so contested that you have people who are lobbying for any number of different alternatives. There are some segments of the anti-nuclear movement that are advocating for complete disarmament, for unilateral disarmament, for the abolition of nuclear weapons. You have others who are looking for a more gradual way to transcend bipolarity and the, the sort of firm divides of the Cold War and see political engagement as the only way to do so. Uh, so you really do have a, a broad spectrum of views. And, and what makes the early 1980s such an interesting period is that there is this big public debate about the costs of fighting the Cold War and whether the costs that had been paid to fight the Cold War were sustainable, whether they were worthwhile, you know, was competition something that needed to still be be waged? And and the answers to that question are, are as numerous as they are wide ranging. You know, one of the things you pull out in terms of this, this real fight over the, the Euro missile and the detente issue is... Um, Reagan had a view of American involvement in European security uh, as a fundamental force for good, uh, recalling the decisive U.S. action in the World War II, uh, in World War II, the reconstruction of Europe, um, the the successful uh, U.S. intervention uh, in Berlin and the airlift. Um, this this other generation uh, has a different view. Um, and th that generation seems to recall 
Vietnam, Watergate, other issues. And so I want to get a better sense of, of, of how important this generational divide is in kind of NATO growing up and, and how Reagan and his fellow heads of state and, and allies in Europe kind of manage that generational issue. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating uh, thread that runs through the book is that there is a near constant anxiety that the formative memories of young people will lead them to different conclusions than their predecessors. And so in the early 1980s, this problem is dubbed by many alliance watchers and policymakers as the challenges of the successor generation. But it should be clear, they had worried about all of these problems in the late 1960s, too. So the 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 fact that young people might not have sound judgment is, uh, is not exactly a phenomenon unique to the early 1980s. Uh, it might resonate with a few listeners uh, today, right? I think every generation sees, sees those kinds of impulses. But in the early 1980s, there is this huge questioning uh, where policymakers wonder if those who had come of age during the Cold War would see the intrinsic logic of an alliance like NATO. So you alluded to this in your question, right? The, the people who had made NATO, who had come of age when NATO was being formed in the late 1940s, they were shaped by the experiences of the Great Depression, the Second World War, by the uh, division of Europe immediately after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift. And for American policymakers in particular, they saw that as a great moment of U.S. contribution, right? That it it was that the United States had a strong reputation as a result of the Marshall Plan and the Berlin Airlift. And when they looked in the early 1980s to more recent history, the formative events that might have shaped a generation coming of age then, they found a lot less to like, right? Would a generation that had come of age with the Vietnam War uh, and backlash to the civil rights movement and Watergate have the same kind of appreciation or affection for the United States, to see the United States as a force for good. And so in some ways, the angst over a new generation is actually an angst over the contemporary or recent history of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. engagement in the world. But what it manifests as in the early 1980s is concern that the very fabric of the alliance will start to break down, that younger people will decide that they don't need NATO that NATO no longer makes sense in, in the world in which they live, that NATO can't provide for their security, or that the United States can't be trusted. And those pressures uh, in a diffuse system where of an alliance made up primarily of democracies, it's not hard to imagine scenarios where disaffected voters go to the ballot box and turf out Atlanticist uh, politicians in favor of those who offer alternatives. And, and so this sort of nightmare scenario always loomed large in the thinking of, of policymakers. Yeah, it's funny, though. It seems like we still have some work to get to the end. Um, because what we've got here, now we're at this point in the story in, in the early 1980s where we have um, those youth of unsound judgment calling for disarmament and, um, and our kind of esteemed government leaders with recollections of decisive U.S. action in, in, in allied unity, um, calling for a recommitment to deterrence. And yet, as you point out in your book, at any number of points, Reagan's own advisors are surprised that he wants to eliminate nuclear weapons altogether. And the people that supposedly are opposed to Reagan also want to eliminate nuclear weapons altogether. So it, it seems like this should be a pretty easy lift. Um, and, and so why isn't it an easy lift? 
I think it's one of the great caricatures of this this period in the early 1980s that uh, politicians were somehow pitted against protesters. Uh, it's striking when you go back to read how many current and former policymakers broadly shared the skepticism of many protesters about the role of nuclear weapons, and Reagan was chief among them. Uh, you know, very critical of of what deterrence meant in practice, what it would mean uh, if if nuclear war were to ever break break out, and and committed uh, in ways that surprised many people who worked for him uh, to seeing the abolition abolition of nuclear weapons. What the the way that the story changes and changes so dramatically is is a, a function of a few different things. And, and that's a classic historian answer, right? That it's more complicated than you think. But I would flag a few critical ingredients to what makes the, the agreement possible, uh, the INF Treaty that, that Reagan and Gorbachev signed in December 1987. The first ingredient to me is Mikhail Gorbachev. So Gorbachev inherits a system in the Soviet Union that is struggling. Uh, that is uh, facing acute challenges of alliance management uh, in the Warsaw Pact, facing an economic roller coaster as oil prices boom and bust, uh, and increasingly starting to face difficulties in the fabric of the Soviet Union itself. But Gorbachev is willing and is surrounded by key advisors, is, is willing to rethink some of the fundamental building blocks of the Soviet Union's role in the world. And it is Gorbachev, I think, who makes the fateful decision that makes an agreement to get rid of the intermediate range nuclear forces possible, right? It is Gorbachev who in early 1987 decides to untie the arms control package, which just means that he decides that no longer will an agreement to reduce or limit or get rid of INF, no longer will that be pegged to the strategic defense initiative, to Soviet efforts to stop the much beloved Reagan program, Start Wars. And you might want to tell us about the Strategic Defense Initiative as well. Yeah, uh, any any listener to this podcast, I believe, might have some familiarity with SDI, but it is the the 1983 Reagan uh, idea of building uh, a form of ballistic missile defense, right? And it is testament to how Reagan wished to break out of the old logic of nuclear deterrence, right? Thinking of ways that technology might be harnessed to provide new forms of security. And so we often associate it with the sort of crazy graphics of lasers shooting things out of the sky, very futuristic 1980s uh, drawings that were made. And so in the earlier arms control negotiations, the Soviet Union had linked progress on INF uh, to restrictions on SDI, right? That had been what broke the summit up uh, in Reykjavik in 1986, that historic moment between Reagan and Gorbachev. And so it is a, a huge pivotal turning point in the negotiating process when Gorbachev decides to walk away from that package and say, we need a deal on INF and we will do, do that alone. But Gorbachev also needs someone to do business with. And Reagan is the perfect interlocutor in many respects. Reagan and Gorbachev share a deep con concern, anxiety about what a world with nuclear weapons looks like, and a conviction to want to do something uh, about that. And so much of the story of how that agreement happens is about personalities, about an unusual relationship, perhaps even friendship. Uh, though Reagan wasn't really one for friends, but uh, a, a close camaraderie and working relationship between Reagan and Gorbachev that, that makes that agreement possible. And, and Reagan had been seeking this partner for some time, it seems, right? He had been back and forth, pen pals with any number of Soviet leaders who yeah, Reagan want to pen pal back until Gorbachev. Reagan Right, Reagan famously always joked about how, how many of his Soviet counterparts kept dying on him, which made getting anything done quite difficult. But even back to the earliest days of, of the Reagan administration, Reagan is is taking time to write personal letters to the, the Soviet leaders of the day, whether that's Leonid Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov, Konstantin Chernyanko, or Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, but it, it is with Gorbachev that he sort of finds the, the perfect match. The timing is right. Their views align. Uh, and so this, the stars sort of align to make 
that that partnership possible. So we now get a point where Reagan, Gorbachev, the United States, the Soviet Union, ready to do business together, ready to abolish a, a class of nuclear weapons for the first time in history, and it's still not easygoing. And yeah. This is the beauty of, of NATO. Uh, you have, you know, 15 other partners of the United States, allies of the United States, who all have opinions of their own. And one of the weird quirks of the INF issue is that Reagan had proposed uh, this idea of eliminating the whole class of weapons in 1981 before uh, NATO had begun its own deployments. And the, that option was immensely popular among European governments at the time because it pushed, it, it created new problems, new challenges for the Soviet Union, could diffuse criticism of the dual track decision. But that European support from critical partners was always premised on the belief that it was impossible. And when it proved possible in 1986, when Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik have this moment where it looks like they're going to make major reductions in the nuclear arsenal, everyone panics. Uh, chief among them, the British and the French, who, for reasons of possessing their own nuclear weapons programs, were particularly concerned about the implications of any agreement to do away with these missiles. And so in 1986 and 1987, as the agreement is coming together, you have many well-placed hints and uh, outright condemnation in the press from allied leaders of a zero option solution. You have huge domestic political debates about what the costs of zero will be. Uh, that's particularly true in the Federal Republic of Germany. And then Reagan also faces domestic political opposition. Uh, there is a, a sizable, uh, at least vocal contingent of Republicans who are unimpressed with the president's willingness to sign such an agreement. And so Reagan faces a flurry of op-eds and opinion pieces uh, criticizing the INF Treaty, both before he and Gorbachev signed it in December 1987 and after. And we're talking about high-profile people. Some of the usual critics of arms control, like North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, but also Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, uh, who warn that the INF Treaty is going to unravel the foundations of NATO strategy. NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Bernard Rogers is pretty vocal in the press about what he believes to be the downsides of the agreement for NATO. And so there's it's it's not a slam dunk, even though in theory uh, it sounds picture perfect. So it doesn't seem like a slam dunk at the time. Reagan and Gorbachev nonetheless push it through. Let's get to the coda. 30 years later, it looked like a slam dunk for 30 years. And then what happened? Yeah, so uh, the INF Treaty is no longer with us. Uh, it had been one of the, the interesting things about writing this book was writing uh, the early history of the INF Treaty in parallel to the INF Treaty being dismantled. Uh, and so you have sort of a, a rough road for the INF Treaty after uh, in the 2010s. Uh, the Obama administration uh, accused the Russians of cheating on the treaty. The Russians, in true characteristic form, responded by alleging that the United States had itself cheated on the treaty with a number of sort of spurious claims about the nature of the American posture in Eastern Europe. And ultimately, uh, in 2018, the Trump administration decided to walk away from the agreement. So we no longer have the INF Treaty uh, as part of the arms control artifice, the, the sort of structure between the United States and the Soviet Union, we're, or Russia now. We are left with only a new start as the sort of last beleaguered portion of, of the, the structure. Now, it, one of the things that you've really pointed out and one of the things that your book does such a wonderful job of doing is shows us how the euro missiles the inf question is really this kind of central 
issue that leads to the modernization of the NATO alliance as this kind of uh, political force that can be wielded effectively um, when done in concert, um, even though it's a closely run thing, um, or it can be very unwieldy and can lead to this kind of uh, sense of Western and American decline. Um, now we're at a point where the INF Treaty is no longer with us, though those weapons that would fall under that treaty are not yet deployed in Europe. Um, there's clearly another issue that's occupying NATO. And though the nuclear question still hangs over NATO, I wonder if you could go back now uh, after that history you've just laid out for us and tell us why or why not it's instructive for kind of NATO observers and NATO officials and those domestic publics that support NATO. Um, why is the Euro missile case instructive or not instructive for the situation we find ourselves in today? Russians' invasion of Ukraine, nuclear brinksmanship, and all the other security questions that seem to be popping up um, to challenge kind of U.S. unity with European and Canadian partners? Yeah, it's a great question and, and one I've been asked uh, on a few occasions since, since writing the book. And I am obviously having spend my time writing history. I'm a firm believer that looking to the past can help us puzzle through some of the challenges today. But I don't think that the story of the Euro missiles offers any neat lessons that are exported and can be applied to uh, today's situation. I don't think that there's an arms control recipe that we can somehow lift from the 1980s and tweak around the margins and then make work in a dramatically different landscape today. But that doesn't mean that the story of the Euro missiles doesn't tell us something about where we are. And it seems to me that there are a few different dimensions of the history I write about in the book that we're seeing a continuation of or a new chapter in in our present moment. Uh, and one is about a perennial debate in alliance politics about this question of engagement, right? You drew me out on what detente means to all of these different people, and we don't tend to use that shorthand anymore. But we are still debating in an alliance context what engagement with adversaries looks like. So if we think about NATO's conversations over the last year about how long we will sanction the Russians, when and what thresholds might need to be met before we resume, quote unquote, normal relations with the Russians, thinking about how NATO has confronted new challenges from China and whether the alliance sees a role for itself in that uh, th that as a geopolitical issue, right? If you are a reader of NATO news, you will have seen that the United States has pushed a lot in recent years for NATO to more proactively address China. There has been some reluctance on the part of major European partners to take up that challenge. And so there are clear parallels to the Cold War uh, and strategic debates. And none of those should surprise us. That's the sign in many respects of a healthy alliance. We are, NATO is an alliance primarily of democratic states. And so it is unruly and those debates are going to play out in public. And that's not a sign that the alliance is on the verge of collapse or about to fall apart or in crisis or any number of the other buzzwords that are often used. I think the other, the other place where I see just a remarkable amount of prehistory in the Euro missiles uh, that feeds into our present moment is in how we talk uh, in the press and in uh, policy circles uh, and just in, in the informed commentariat about Germany's place in the world. Uh, since last February, when the Russians uh, launched their full-scale invasion of Ukraine, widening the war started in 2014, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not the Germans will take the lead, whether they will shoulder more of the burden. I mean, think about the latest saga over what tanks the Germans would supply and whether they would do so if the United States didn't first supply tanks. 
these are all rooted in the peculiar nature of the way NATO worked during the Cold War. NATO was an alliance set up to both rehabilitate the Germans and harness uh, German power, but to do so in a way that made it more palatable and frankly obscured the degree to which German the Germans, West Germans in this case, wielded power and influence. Uh, and so we are seeing a continuation of that, uh, but you can also see how narratives evolve over time. I've been struck at by just how many people describe Germany, now unified Germany, as a country with an immense pacifist tradition. And here they point often to the protests of the early 1980s to uh, big record-breaking demonstrations against the Euro missiles. But that Germany was the same West Germany that also fielded an army that was over 500,000 people strong uh, and allowed the stationing of an incredible, frankly unfathomable amount of nuclear weapons on its territory. Uh, and so we can see how over time certain strands of the narrative win out over others. Uh, and as a historian, I think it's interesting to sort of reflect on, on where, where those privileged narratives come from and, and what facts drop out of the narrative uh, as, as those events recede. Well, Susie, that, that's certainly a good way to recap um, the value of this history for, 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 for today's moment, but also um, thinking through uh, why the Cold War matters. There's a tradition here on Reaganism that we like to ask all our guests. Um, and that is, what is your favorite Reagan quote? I imagine you have quite a few at the ready, um, so I'm going to leave it to you. Yeah, I, I would be a failure, I think, as a historian of INF if I didn't give you one or maybe two. The first is the uh, wonderful Reagan truism, trust but ver verify. I have a mug from the Reagan Library with that. I was that about to say you should get the mug if you don't have it. I already have it. I'm on it. I'm I'm prepared. And the other is is a wonderful folksy Reaganism from the early deliberations over uh, whether or not they will adopt the zero option uh, as a negotiating position, where Reagan tells the National Security Council that uh, I will will paraphrase poorly here, but when a fellow asks for the moon and you offer green cheese, then you can meet somewhere in the middle. All right, moon, greed, cheese, and trust but verify. That's as good a place it is as any to wrap up this podcast with Susie Colburn. Thanks so much for joining us, Susie. This has been a wonderful, wonderful session. Thanks. Great to be here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.